All right. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. We're live. So top left corner will tell you the time for live. I'm going to start the recorder, which is something I forgot to do last week. Recovered that one, Kev. Got it all off the live stream. Worked perfect. Good. We're live now, mate. We've been live yeah, for know, like but... 25 seconds. Oh, me? <laughs> Us. This is the <laughs> level of right. professionalism. 21 here. seconds, apparently. Yeah. We've got four, four people on now, so just give it a couple of seconds to... Yeah. Get a few people there to listen. People, Here we go, 45, can, 45 now. It's like a cut-down right. version of Brady Bunch with just the four of us here. We can All do right. things like, I'm looking at Sean, I'm looking at Mert. Look at 60. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do the opposite. Right. That's it. Give it a go. We've got a, we've got a few people live with us now. Welcome to another episode of our Knife Making Down Under podcast, Thursday Night Regular. Um, tonight we've got Corin. Mert, myself, the three stooges as usual, but we have a very special guest with us tonight. As you would have seen on all of the promotions for this podcast, we have Sean McIntyre with us, and Sean is an ABS master smith and also a long-term member of the Australian Knife Makers Guild, um, who's held various positions within the guild and seen the evolution of um, the guild turning into what it is today. Um, so we really appreciate having Sean on board and basically tonight will be Sean running through what is required for you to create a knife that will pass or should pass guild assessment to get you entry, entry into the guild. Um, the plan for tonight is we're going to, you'll probably everyone will be happy about this, Mert, Corin and myself are going to disappear and Sean's going to take over. Um, and go through it. We'd like to leave questions until the end, but Coram will be monitoring um, that process. And if something, a sticking point comes up, then we, we might have time to talk about that. But bear with it. Welcome, Sean. Thank you very much for giving us your time. We appreciate, um, we appreciate that from you. Thanks very much for having me. And thanks for, for supplying the platform. It's really appreciated. Yeah, we've had a lot of um, inquiries come through the Knife Making Down Under podcast pages on Facebook regarding the Guild. And what a lot of it has come down to is the standards related to making a knife, which we've covered a few times along the way, uh, you know, briefly important people into the right directions. But I think who better than a mastersmith and a long-term member of the Guild and the guy board. that wrote the wrote the rule, <laughs> and the guy, yeah, one, the guy with premier like involvement in doing the standards documentation yeah. for uh, getting your knives assessed in the guild. So, yeah, Sean, welcome. Well, um, well, thank you. I'm certainly happy to run through it, and um, and hopefully by the end of tonight, we'll clear up a few of the questions that anyone's got, and um, and get them on the right track. So, thanks for the opportunity. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, mate. So everybody, um, Gamico, who sponsored the podcast, obviously Artisan Supplies, uh, the company for whom I work, have put together a package of about um, about $5,000 value or something, basically, um, to get people, encourage people to join the guild. Could be less than that. Whatever it is, it's a lot of money anyway. Um, basically, what we're offering is if you are successful in joining the guild or upgrading your membership from Proby to full uh, in the next three months, that is before Christmas, 
and uh, or if you have the the knives in the hands of the the it's like a competition if you like because you've got to have the hands in the your knives in the hands sorry tripping over your knives in the hands of the state representative in your state um if you can join the guild we are offering three scholarships for the best knives that um that are submitted uh, as judged by the state reps and we're offering three scholarships for the best ones going probie to full we're also offering three scholarships for guild members who are the most helpful to people doing going through the process on social media just to make sure that we've got uh, got coverage and that's uh, in the new format, that's a $150 membership fee. The Guild's membership fees have gone up because they're going to employ a member of staff that's going to manage all the administration, but also promote the aims of the Guild. So that's going to be a really big boon for the Guild. Um, and it's basically, we're, we're taking an industry association that's been around since the 1980s, Sean, 1981 or two or something. A yeah, long time. Yeah, off the top of my head, we'll go with that. Before yep. my time, but yeah, that sounds like about that long. I would have been very young at the time too. Yeah, um, me too. And uh, and we're going to take that association and make it um, the the industry association that it's always been, but more relevant, and and, and that's really cool. So love to be a part of that. It's something Gamaco can do. But we're offering something else as well, and that is if you're successful, whether you're the best knives or not. If you're successful in joining the guild before the end of the year, Gamaco will give you a $50 gift voucher towards the materials that you used to make those knives. So regardless of, uh, I think we've got 70 vouchers to give away, but we, we, if we if we don't give away all of those because we don't, 70 people don't do it, there's 180 people now listening to this. But if um, we don't give all those vouchers away, um, we'll do something else with the money to help the guild. And um, if we... Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, so that's basically the plan. Anyway, enough from me. Sean, you're ready to go. Okay. Okay, we're going to step out of the room, guys, and uh, leave it to you, Sean. I'll all just right. get Thank you very much, up. guys. Appreciate no it. Worries at all. Just let me get ding, 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 ding. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining in tonight. Uh, I appreciate your time. Okay, I'll just do a brief introduction of myself um, and then we'll get straight stuck straight into it. So, yep, Sean McIntyre, for those of you that don't know me, I've been a Guild member since 2000, so 20 years now. Um, I'm an ABS Mastersmith. I got my ABS Mastersmith rating in 2008. Uh, first started making knives in 1993, so 27 years ago moved to Australia permanently in 1999 uh, and reset up here to make and started making knives late 99, early 2000. So that's kind of my history. Um, so for the entire time that I have made knives in Australia, I have essentially been part of the Australian Knife Makers Guild. So um, up on your screen now is the first page. And what we've done here is the the guild assessment checklist is a is a 20 point checklist um you bring three knives to your state rep for assessment um, and they will uh, look at all of those knives um, and rate them according to this 20 point checklist the reason why we brought the 20 point checklist in is it was a way of um it, it was a way of getting consistency for the guild across the states. It was a way of getting the guild having consistency 
uh, across state reps. You know, if a new state rep came in, an old step rate, state rep had stepped out. Um, it, it gave a way for there to be consistency across straits and across time uh, for, for everyone who came to get their knowledge assessed to be assessed equally and fairly. The other thing about the guilt checklist to think about is that if you come as a probationary member and you hopefully you pass, if you don't pass, this checklist will be filled out by the state rep. Uh, each of the three knives will be assessed. Each of the three knives will be ranked down this list. Um, and when you go home, you're going to have a, a reference point to look at the checklist, look at the knives, see the problem areas. The state rep will have, you know, hopefully discussed the problem areas with you, helped you understand why those, um, why, you know, certain things passed, why certain things didn't pass. And then when you go home, you have a record uh, on your own so that when you, you start, you know, working on your knives again and you try and improve those points, you can actually go back and refer uh, and, and hopefully it'll help you understand, you know, where the problem areas were. Karin, if you'd be able to go one slide back, please. We'll just go over the checklist if possible. Okay. So purpose. Today, I'll give you an overview of Australian Knife Maker's Guild checklist, which is used to assess uh, any knife submitted for membership, right? So that's the purpose of just spell that out. The checklist is, is broken up into three points, uh, three different sections. It's blade, handle, and design. Um, I'm actually going to flip the order. I'm going to mostly go by the checklist in order. Uh, the checklist is available from the AKG website. You can go to About Us, go to Join, um, and there's actually a, a download for the um, membership form, and you can download it from there, and you can have this 20-point checklist. Design is actually at the end, um, but like anything, anything in life, um, you know, you got to start with a design. You got to start with a plan to know where you're going to go and where you're going to build your knife. So I'm actually going to reverse it a little bit. We'll recap design at the end, but I'm actually going to start out with design. Um, Karen, if we could go forward, please. And one more. Okay, design. This knife in the picture here, I actually have it um, here. This is the knife. Okay, first of all, one little caveat, by the way, I just wanted to get out of the way. Normally when I do these, I'm in front of a live audience and the most technical thing I have to deal with is a whiteboard marker. So I apologize in advance for any technical glitches that happen and there's gonna be a little bit of you know stuff where I'm trying to figure out where the camera is, okay? So this is the knife that's in the picture. I actually built this knife to go through the checklist um, point by point and take some photographs of it as I was building it and to help you understand what we'll be looking at uh, in the guild checklist um, so that, you know, problem areas and hopefully there'll be some helpful hints and tips as well for, for things that you might be struggling with. Um, okay, so good overall design. What is good overall design? Good overall design is, you know, it's a couple of things. It's aesthetics, it's function, it's, it's form. Um, and, and the easiest way you're going to get to the point where you get to good design is by drawing your knives. Um, my first guild show was in 2000. Uh, 
I was a, a relatively new maker. I'd been making knives for seven years, but it, it was very broken. I was traveling a lot. I didn't have my equipment set up. I had very little melt life making experience at that point. And it was in my first show in 2000. And across the table for me was a knife maker named Doug Timms. And Doug Timms had a mirror polished stainless steel double bit axe on his table that was had a wire wrapped grip. I'll, I'll never forget it. Next to me on my left was Steve Filicetti. Now, for any of you that don't know who Steve Filicetti is, Google Google Steve Filicetti and Google his knives. So he had five mosaic Damascus bowies on the table and one small utility knife. Across from me diagonally the other way was Peter Del Razzo. Now, I'm sure, I'm hoping every single person tuning in today knows who Peter Del Razzo is. At the time, Peter Del Razzo had two eight-foot tables filled in knives. There was there was daggers, there was hunting swords, there was his hunting knives, there was his neck knives. It was just an amazing display of knives. And then I looked down at my table and I was pretty sad. Um, I had some very utilitarian, serviceable knives. They were well-built. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Turned out there wasn't much to be excited about either. And I was looking at these other makers and I was thinking, man, how do you bridge the gap between where I was as a maker and what I was looking at on these other tables? And fortunately for me at that show, I started to form friendships with Peter Del Rosa, with Steve Filicetti, with guys like Doug Timms. And early on in my knife making, guys like that, particularly Steve, particularly Peter, um, were a big influence on my knife making. And and Peter, in, in particular, the first and most valuable thing that he finally pounded into my head was, you've got to draw your knives. You've got to design your knives. Um, you have to have a plan when you make a knife. This is the single most important thing that I can tell you tonight, is if you want to improve your knife making, if you're struggling in any way, shape, or form, getting your knives down on paper is going to be absolutely critical. So draw your design, then make a template. Cut your knife out, cut it out of cardboard, cut it out of a cereal box, cut it out of plywood. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Something more tangible than a piece of paper, right? What's that going to show you? Well, it's going to show you, is my handle long enough? Is my handle comfortable? Is the proportion of this thing right? Um, does it kind of swoosh through the air the way I think it's going to? Um, all of that, you can, you can start all of that before you ever cut a piece of steel before you ever start grinding anything before you ever start you know using a valuable materials paper and pencil is free and it's going to be your most valuable tool okay so um that's you know that's the basic premise of design um Karin, next one over there okay what are we looking at here this is 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 the knife that i've built and it's basically a blueprint. This is a drawing of the knife that I've built, okay? Now you might ask yourself, why did I draw this on a crumpled piece of brown torn paper when I had a perfectly good drawing pad underneath? I honestly don't have a good answer for that. And I think if I did, some parts of my life would be easier. But anyway, it is what it is. Um, this drawing is, is not art, but it is accurate. It's enough to tell me everything I need to know for the project that I'm building. Uh, it's, it's, it shows me all my lengths. It shows me tang orientation. It shows me handle orientation. 
I've even drawn, I've drawn the spacers in. Now they're not accurate to, you know, point one of the mill, but they are overall accurate to um, the overall length that they will be in the finished knife. So that I, I'm not caught by surprise um, when all of a sudden I, I don't have enough handle material or I've got too much handle material and now my design is not what I thought it was, right? So draw your knives, um, have a plan, work to a plan. Uh, if you are a forger and you forge blades and you may or may not actually end up um, having, you know, you might forge a blade and it's not exactly what you thought it was, that's fine. Trace around it uh, and, and draw inside that envelope and make an attractive knife out of it. Form a plan from there. Um, but, you know, eventually when you get to the point where you're, you're getting down to very, very specific designs, you know, your templates can be made out of steel and you can forge to, you know, forge to a template so that you've got a plan. Um, if you're a stock removal maker, uh, you know, photograph, you can photograph your drawing, you can spray adhesive down to your piece of steel. You've got your holes marked out. Uh, you got your blade marked out, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a much more efficient and accurate way of making a knife. Um, okay. Uh, sure. Let's go on to the next one. Okay. Right. So now actually starting to go through the guild assessment checklist. Um, this next section is blade. I'll cover geometry and how this relates to overall performance and include techniques I use in grinding and finishing a blade to overcome some problem some common problem areas. Okay, next one, please. Right, blade. Grinds properly executed. Okay, so what does that actually mean? Um, that means that you have no dips. You don't have any. Right, we're back up. You yeah, sorry, any... a bit of a glitch at my end. I <laughs> just sorry. That's all right. All good. Um, properly execute the grinds. What you're looking for when, you know, what I'm looking for when I'm looking at a blade and see if it's properly executed, the grinding is properly executed. I'm looking for if the blade is flat ground, it's flat. There's no wobbles, there's no dips, uh, there's no deep grinding marks, uh, the tapers are even and straight. Um, I'm looking at Okay, big giant blade here. Um, if I'm looking at it, I'm looking at, you know, the transition coming up and out of here. Um, actually, let me just grab this knife. Sorry, this camera's not actually working the way I thought it would. That's okay. All right. I'm looking down the blade and I'm looking for an even grind. I'm looking down the edge and I'm looking for a straight edge. All right, I'm gonna hold the blade and I'm gonna tilt it up and down and I'm gonna see if there's any, any ripples. I'm gonna see if there's any dips. I'm gonna see if there's a two inch divot. Um, essentially, I'm looking for accuracy. If it's a hologram blade, it's the same thing. There's no dips, there's no wobbles, there's no chatter marks. There's nothing in there that is you know, uh, untoward. Um, Yeah, basically that's about it. I'm looking for the bright, you know. Um, huh. What else have we got? 
Okay. Karn, next slide, please. Right, yeah. Blade edge thickness. Blade edge thickness is going to be dependent on blade design. You know, what's the end product? What's the finished result that you're looking for in a knife? Is it a big heavy chopper? Is it a skinning knife? Is it a kitchen knife? You know, what, it is, what is it that you're actually looking for? I think for a lot of new makers, this is probably one of the single most uh, difficult areas, or it's certainly an area that I oftentimes see um, a lot of room for improvement, let's say. Um, oftentimes when you see a new maker's knives, the edge, even if they accomplish a grind, the edge is probably going to be, or can be too thick. So it's, this is something to be very aware of when you're actually, you know, in the midst of grinding the blade. Don't grind the blade and then start finishing the blade and then finish building the knife. And then at the very end, you go to sharpen the knife and all of a sudden you realize that you've got this thick edge. So this is something to keep in mind at the very early beginning stages of the knife making process, right? So in this picture here, I'm actually using uh, a sheet metal thickness gauge. Now you don't actually need to have one of these. Um, it's just a nifty tool. I actually bought it and didn't have a use for it, to be honest with you. I just thought it looked pretty cool, but it actually works great for this. I saw a knife maker named Ben Tendek using this, right? So there's actually a, uh, you know, there's a series of gaps around this disc and those gaps are actually marked with the actual thickness that they are. So you can actually go down the blade and find out exactly where it starts to drop into the slot. And what that's going to allow you to do is it's going to allow you to work your way all the way down the blade and check for an even thickness, right? Now you don't have to have one of these to do this. Uh, you can have a set of veneers that's going to work really well as well. You can use a micrometer. Um, you can, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can actually measure it. The thing that I would suggest to you is that you measure in a consistent way, right? You form a system for yourself that allows you to always measure the same way. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you grab a blade with a set of veneers and you start to measure it, depends on how high up the blade you are. So if you're struggling a little bit with this, take a Sharpie marker and draw a line, a specific difference distance away from the edge of the blade and, and mark and, and measure along that distance, right? Um, this is really gonna help you keep consistent all the way down the blade, especially, you know, a, a, a big long blade try and figure out for yourself where your problem areas are. You know, um, some people leave quite a thick section at the ricasso of the blade, you know, in this section here, you know, down closer to the guard. Some people leave the tip section too thick. Um, I have a tendency and I've always had a tendency and something I have to fight against the belly of the blade right here. I have a tendency to get that thinner than the rest of the blade faster. So I have to be conscious of that. So when you're grinding knives, stop, have a look, check the blade all the way along the edge, see where you're at. I can't really give you specific numbers for grinding a blade. It very much depends on the blade that you're, that you're building. On this knife here, you know, this is saying it's, it's right at this, at this point, it's 12,000 of an inch thick. 12,000 is 
approximately 0.3 of a millimeter thick, right? So that's probably about 120 grit. Um, I'm going to put a slight convex on that edge. I'm going to have to hand sand it. So I'm going to leave a little bit to, of room to move. Now, edge thickness is very much going to depend, like I said, on knife design. It's going to depend on the steel that you're using. It's going to depend on your heat treating. It's going to hit a lot of things. So this is going to have to be very much up to you as an individual maker. But, you know, start measuring, start recording. And when you test your knives, you know, um, keep a record and a log of, of what you've been doing when you've been building these knives so that you build up a consistent picture of what works for your knives and what you do. Okay. So that's edge thickness. Um, Karn? Okay. Plunge cuts. This is number one, the, the biggest problem that a lot of new makers have. Okay. So I've got a series of photos coming up where I'm going to try and show you some, some things that I do that help me and hopefully might help you or things that you can try anyway. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is number three on the checklist when we're going down uh, on the guild assessment checklist. This is something that every knife maker is, well, should be trained to look at. Um, you pick up a knife, you turn it edge facing you, you look down, you check the plunge cuts, right? Okay, this picture here, the plunge cuts are roughed in, but they're clearly not accurate, right? Um, they're, you know, they're not terminating at the same point. Uh, they've got a little bit of a wobble in them. One is a, a, a smaller, you know, a bigger slope. One's a tighter radius. Um, they're not terrible, uh, but they're certainly not good. Um, these, for me, when I rough these in, I'm roughing them in on 120, like a 100 or 120 grit belt, okay? I'm going to leave the plunge cuts until the end. I'm going to get most of the material out of the way as I'm grinding the blade. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to cut the plunge cuts basically towards the end of the grinding process. Um, and I'm going to cut them in basically in one go. Uh, I don't want to be grinding this knife and have a go at the plunge cuts every single pass. That's just a death by a thousand cuts, right? You've got a hundred chances of screwing it up versus one chance of screwing it up. Um, so, like I said, I'm going to get rid of most of the material out of the way first. Um, I'm going to leave it to the end. And then I'm going to come in when there's about three millimeters of material left. And I'm going to just cut the plunge cuts in in one go. And then I'm going to finesse them. Okay. Next one, Karin. Right. Blew it. Um, I really like, especially if I'm struggling, you know, sometimes with plunge cuts, they're going to go in uh, the first go and you're going to nail it and it's a good day and you move on. That's not always what happens. Um, so you're gonna have to make some adjustments. And if I'm struggling to make the adjustment or um, there's something that I can't quite see what's going on, I'm gonna take a, a magic marker. I like blue actually, it seems to work best out of all of them visually. And I'm gonna go in and I'm actually gonna draw blue and mark into the plunge cuts, right? Um, and what that's going to do is that on the next pass, I'm going to see where I'm hitting and I'm not hitting. You can see in the inset picture that there's a blue line that's still left there, but you can see that up into the plunge cut, it's shiny. All right. So what's that telling me? Well, that's telling me that I've hit up into the plunge cut, but I've obviously got a low area that I need to address. Right now I can either address it now on the grinder 
or when I go to hand sand it, I can realize that I've got a dip there and I can't get out and I've got to go back to the grinder anyway. So this is why I use the marking blow. This allows me to see exactly what I'm doing, um, where I'm hitting, where I'm not, where my deep scratches are, right? Now, I'll also probably, I, sometimes I do that all the way down the whole blade. Um, you know, I might put blue on the whole blade when I'm grinding it um, so I can see what I'm doing. Um, you know, anything that helps you see what it is that you're doing is going to make your job easier. Okay. The other thing now this says plunge cuts, but something that's not specifically on the checklist, but it's really important. Um, if you look at the top of the plunge cuts or the round, the, the, um, the run out at the spine up there. Yep. Absolutely. Where the little arrow is pointing. It's like a magic elf does that. It's amazing. Um, that's a really critical part of the knife as well. Um, whatever shape that takes in your knife, whatever your grinding style is, you want that to be even and symmetrical on both sides of the blade. Right. Um, and the only thing, and, and the only thing in grinding in general that is going to help you is, is time on the grinder, right? This is, this stuff is muscle memory. Okay. Um, you need to get out on the tools and do some grinding and get your hands basically able to do what it is that your mind wants to do. Cause it's for most people, it's not automatic. Okay. Um, and, and like I said, the only thing that's going to help you with that is time on the grinder. Another thing that I would suggest um, is, is trying and experimenting with, with, if you're struggling, experimenting with different belts can help sometimes, okay? When I'm doing these plunge cuts for me, um, I'm doing this, when, when I'm actually bumping this back and I'm trying to bring this in, this has been cut with a 120 grip belt. Now I'm probably gonna go to a 220 grip belt and I'm just gonna basically what I, what I call bump it in right? I'm going to feed in from the tip and I'm going to hit the plunges and I'm going to push them back whichever way they need to go. Keep, keep in mind which plunge you need to push backwards as well, by the way. Don't push the one that's further back. Don't keep pushing it back. Get the other one back to it. So pay attention, pay attention there. Um, I'm doing this with a, with a 240 or 400 grit gator belt. Um, I've recently been trawling some, some Norax belts um, and I'm, I'm really liking them so far. Um, they seem to work great. Um, so, um, I'm going to push that plunge line back. I'm going to try and make it as even as I possibly can. I'm going to try and make the radiuses the same. Um, and, and like I said, watch, watch the area that the, the pointer's at now. Don't grind up too far, too fast. Don't go all the way to the top with your coarse grit grinding belts, or you're going to run over the top and you're going to cut through the spine. You see that a lot of times with new makers as, as well. You want that transition to come out evenly. You don't want it undercut. Um, yeah. So um, next one, Karin. Okay. Now here's the plunges after being cleaned up on 400 grit. Um, the slope is even. They terminate at the same point. Uh, keep in mind, this, the plunges are actually more even on this knife than the photo shows because I'm holding the knife at an angle in the photo is one thing. Um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to actually judge and actually see if the plunges are right. You can drive yourself nuts going, are these plunges actually even? You have trouble looking at it. Find a place in your shop where you've got a fairly plain background. Um, you know, uh, I've got a 
plywood wall uh, that's actually quite plain. There's nothing there. It's actually a really nice neutral background so I can hold the knife up and actually look at the blade while I'm grinding it with no distractions. Um, uh, another thing that can help is, uh, and I learned this trick from, um, I learned this trick from, from, um, the late, um, Tim Hancock, sorry, had a senior moment there. Tim Hancock is an ABS master smith who recently passed away. I believe it was last year. Um, and this was a trick that he said, if you're struggling to see whether your plunges are even, okay, everyone looks at the blade with the edge facing them and looks at the plunges. And sometimes you can be struggling to see whether or not one is higher or lower. Turn the knife around, look at it from the spine and hold the knife away from you, right? And look past the blade and you'll actually see the two plunges independent of the rest of the knife. And sometimes that's actually much easier way of seeing whether or not the two plunges are level. My hands move the opposite way. It's like a mirror. Anyway, um, that's an easier way of seeing whether or not that can be sometimes an easier way of seeing if the plunges are even and symmetrical. Another thing to keep in mind with this photo is that the, um, the plunges are actually quite even. What's not even is the choil yet. The, the actual dropped edge of the knife right where Karin is pointing now, that's not been cleaned up yet, right? And if that's not been cleaned up yet, it's actually, uh, it's actually undulating in and out, and that's gonna make your plunge lines look like they're undulating in and out, right? So these lines will actually crispen up a lot after I clean that plunge out. The plunge isn't cleaned out there yet. The choil, sorry, isn't cleaned out there yet because I'm always going to try and leave as much material as I can until the end so that the surfaces that I'm working on are protected right? It's kind of a difficult concept to understand, but you don't want to go too far too fast and then not have the material where you need it, right? So in your knife making, one thing that you're always going to have to work out is, is an order of operations. And for me, I cut the plunges first, then I clean the bottom of the ricasso, then I clean the choil or clean the two of them at the same time, right? And and that just works for me in the sense that I know I have them close, but I don't have them finished. And I don't have them finished because if I finish them and I shank the plunges, then I might've run out of material, right? So I'm gonna get the plunges right and then I'm gonna work everything else into them, okay? Karn? Okay. Uh, plunge cuts, and, and then this is the ricasso and the choil area, okay? This is the next item on the list. The spine and ricasso clean and well executed, all right? This is another common problem area. Um, you see a lot of times, you see in, in, in new makers work down in the ricasso, you can see little chatter marks where it's not flat or there's divots or there, there's waffles. You really want that area as clean as you possibly can. And the choil that the, you know the edge drop that wraps around um i'm forging that in and i have to clean you know that's that's actually a rough forging all of that's got to be cleaned and it's got to be cleaned up to the same level as as the as the ricasso is right all of that has to be tidied up so i'm starting to do that in this photo my knives i will grind them generally on a belt grinder uh up to 240 or 400 grit before i ever start hand sanding 
I find it easier for me to keep flat surfaces off of a machine than I do by hand, quite frankly. Um, you know, the other thing as well is um, it it's also depends on when you're doing some of this operation. If you're doing, let's say you're doing a stainless steel blade and let's say it's going to be vacuum heat treated or it's going to be done in a foil packet, you can completely finish the knife when it's soft, right? So that's going to make your order of operations different than what it is my operation as a forging guy. So I'm doing probably 60 or 70% of my grinding after heat treating, right? So that means I've got certain things that I'm going to have to deal with. One of those is the fact that this area of the knife, uh, unless it's a differentially hardened blade, is going to be fully hard when I'm grinding into this material. So filing is not an option, right? So if you're doing the knife, if you're doing this section when it's annealed, you can go ahead and draw file it. For me, I can't. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to do it on the grinder. Once again, I'm going to use a, you know, a, probably a Gator belt pro, or a Norax belt um, to do this. Um, depending on the design of the knife, you can do it on a, on a flat disc with a, with a table. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is that I'm going to set this up as flat as I possibly can off a machine before I hand sand it. And I'm going to probably want to start with 320 or 400 grit wet and dry paper um, any more than that and the surface that i've left beforehand is too rough i'm going to have to do too much hand by work yeah how much too much work by hand and i'm probably going to end up waffling it out and softening it up right so get it as crisp as you can off the grinder and then hand hand finish from there okay um next one please Carm. okay spine of the blade everyone has their pet peeves right um, this one bugs me. Um, I see so many knives that have got spines. The Ricasso, it's a little bit more of a difficult area. I can kind of understand where there's, there's an issue. The spine of the knife, if I see grinder marks in the spine of the knife, I, I, it just, it just drives me insane. There, there just, there just isn't any reason for it. Okay. So especially on any knife design that is a, is a, is a convex shape, right? There's just, there's just no reason to not have it clean. Okay. Sorry. There's little diatribe over. Um, once again, I'm going to finish as much of this on a machine as I possibly can. One, it's faster. And two, I do a better job. Okay, so this particular knife is, is this, this Hunter design. Um, you know, it's a drop point Hunter. It's the spine is a convex shape, right? So I actually did, I can do this on a disc. Anything that you can do on a disc is flatter than anything that you can do on a belt grinder. That's just the nature of the beast, right? So I've got 320 grit paper on the disc. Um, and I am going to grind this in this particular case, the marks are actually going sort of at a 45 degree angle ac across the blade. And what that does is, is if I've ground the profile of the knife, um, on a belt grinder, for example, and I've got marks that are all horizontal to the blade, I then go at the disc and I go at an angle and now I, I, it's foolproof. I know if there's any marks on there that are still horizontal to the blade, I haven't ground out all the marks from the belt grinder, right? If I haven't ground out all the marks from the belt grinder, when I go to hand finish this thing, I'm not going to get those marks out. I'm going to have to go back, right? So at each stage, when you do something in your knife making, if you can develop a process for you 
and for your machinery and for your methods that make it foolproof or almost foolproof so that, you know, the next step um, is, um, is, is, is basically it's got an inbuilt check system, right? I've ground this on the disc. I've looked at it. There's no horizontal marks. I know I'm on to the next stage and I know everything's been done correctly in this previous stage, right? And, and all of that helps me make sure that I've got everything in order. I am not actually an inherently accurate individual. Um, I'm not inherently an organized individual. So in my knife making, I've had to foolproof as many things as I possibly can. And that's what you're going to probably have to do in your knife making as well. Um, you know, if, if you're just your average individual who's learning to make knives and you're not some sort of savant or you don't have, you know, 30 years experience as a tool and die maker or something like that, there's a lot of systems that you're going to have to work out in your shop that allow you to make sure that each step of the knife making process is done properly before you move on to the next one. Because like I said earlier, everything has an order of operations. And the more that you put those order of operations into place means you don't have to do go backwards. It means that you don't have to do rework. Okay. So that's the, that's the spine and the Ricasso area of the blade. Um, you know, and I hope that makes sense. Okay. Oh, actually one more thing. And yeah, we can leave it on here. That's fine. Um, this is the, this is the spine finished up to 400 grit, um, you know, satin finish, um, it's straight. Uh, there's no errant marks. There's no J hooks. You know, this is more important in the final finish of the blade, but you know, on the spine, you know, this is what I'm looking for. Uh, and to go from the disc to this, you know, is, is probably literally a couple minutes work. One more thing on the, on the spine. And I said that in this particular knife, this, this knife is designed with a, a, you know, it's a drop point. So it's a convex. It's much easier to do a convex surface because you can get to the entire surface on something like a flat disc or you can do it on a grinder. When you've got something like say, for example, a Bowie design where you've got a concave clip, all right? It's a much more difficult shape to deal with. It's much more difficult to deal with a concave than it is to deal with a convex, right? So, you know, when you're designing your knives um, and also not just a blade, you know, not just a, a clip point, but imagine, for example, a, a handle shape on a full tang knife, right? Get to know your equipment, right? And in some cases, I'm not saying that you should just let your machinery dictate what knives it is that you build, but some things will be easier for you on your equipment doing it, you know, in your shop, right? So if you've got a knife design that you can fit one of your small wheels into your handle shape and it fits that handle shape really well, you're going to have a much easier time of finishing out that curve if you've got a wheel that matches it. Same thing on the clip of a blade. You know, probably you're not going to have a clip that's actually going to fit a contact wheel until unless you've got a monster contact wheel and if you do that's fantastic. But when you're dealing with a concave surface, use the largest surface area that you can that will fit into that concave. Use the largest contact wheel that you've got. It gives you the greatest amount of surface area and the least amount of opportunity to create divots, right? To the same, to the same circumstance, you know, same, same idea. If you're sanding an area on a blade, 
if you're sanding a concave and all you've got is a flat stick, you're riding on two points, you know, of a flat stick into a concave, right? Make your shelf a shaped stick, okay? Actually build a sanding stick that fits in the hollow so that you've got the greatest amount of surface area to keep as much of the surface flat and even as you possibly can, right? That's, that's going to help you quite a bit when you're trying to finish these surface areas. Um, uh, it, it, it chatter marks inside of concaves is built one of the biggest areas. Um, and it's one of the hardest things to keep, uh, in check. So, like I said, you know, try and find something that fits in that area as, as, as tightly as it possibly does, or as well as it possibly does. And that's going to give you a better surface finish. All right. Next one, Carl. Okay. Uh, point centered, sharp, and well-defined on the checklist. Okay. Um, absolutely. You know, the pointy end of the knife, unless it's a sheep's foot, has got to be pointy. All right. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for uh, even tapers uh, from both sides, right? Straight down the spine all the way to the tip. Um, same thing for the edge. You know, the edge, it needs to be centered all the way down the blade, all the way to the tip. It needs to be centered in the ricasso. And then it needs to be centered in the guard. And then the guard needs to be centered in the handle, right? But, um, you know, for the blade tip, you want it to be pointy. Um, and, and to, particularly depending on whatever the knife is designed for, in this case, this is a hunting knife, a skinning knife. It's going to pierce hide. It's going it, to, you know, it's going to slice. It's going to do delicate tasks. You want it to be very, very thin. If I'm looking at a knife and the blade is, is, is parallel and gets all the way out to the tip. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a, an abrupt tip. And then all of a sudden there's a, an acute sort of 45 to the final tip, uh, that edge is too thick, um, your tip is too thick, right? You want that thing to be pointy basically before it's sharpened. Um, it, some people argue with that, you know, some people want, uh, you know, it's an armor piercing tip or it's a super robust tip, or, you know, this tip is designed to go through 44 gallon drums. Well, I have an angle grinder. That's what I go through 44 gallon drums with. Um, if only when they've been properly drained and vented, by the way, cause that can be very dangerous. Um, if I have um, uh, at the tip of a knife, I'm expecting it to be pointy and I'm expecting it to be sharp, right? Okay. Um, next one, please. Consistency of finish. Really important. Uh, this is, you know, once again, a critical area in knife making in general. Um, this relates to the blade, but it rotates, relates to the entire knife. Consistency of finishing. What, what am I talking about here? Okay. This blade is 400 grain, 400 grit satin finish. It's not a very high satin finish at all, actually. Um, one of the things I see with people and satin finishes is taking them too far. And they've actually got a half polished finish, half satin finish. If you're going to satin finish a blade, make it look satin, right? What am I looking for? I'm looking for straight, even, consistent lines, okay? I'm looking for there not to be any j hooks in the finish right um what do i mean by j hooks you know a pause i'm not looking for a stutter step down the blade where the finishes you know all the scratches might be out but your 400 grit satin finishes or whatever the satin finishes is is stuttering down the blade all right um i don't want any any return marks any j hooks at the tip of the blade or at the or at the plunge cuts right 
Um, one of the tricks that Peter Del Rose taught me early on, um, and I hope he doesn't, and I don't think he minds me sharing this, is if you're having trouble with your satin finishes, um, point the blade downhill when you're doing your final satin finishes, you know, tilt it in the vise. If it's attached to a block, tilt the block down at an angle, right? So the tip is lower than the ricasso. And then just take your paper and in one long stroke, just slide straight down the blade and off of it, you know, straight down the blade and off of it. Don't return. Don't go back and forth. This is what gives you your J-hooks. Um, I like, some, some guys sand dry. I find the final finishing easier if I use something like a, you know, WD-40 or soapy water or Windex, whatever. Lubricant can help. Um, so I'm looking for the consistency of finish down the flats. I'm looking for the consistency of the finish on the Ricasso. Um, if you're going to do a machine finish, um, which I think is actually a very, very difficult finish to achieve. Um, make sure it's, you know, consistent all the way along the blade. If you're going to do a polished blade and, and I have seen this and I've seen it multiple times, a mirror polished blade with a 60 grit grinder mark in it is not a mirror polished blade. It's a 60 grit grinder finish that's shiny on top. Okay. If you're going to do a, a polished blade, you have to have the surface perfect before you start. Okay. So especially for the, the newer makers out there, um, you know, the guys that are just starting it, guys and girls that are just starting out, I really suggest a satin finish. I'll tell you why. Um, it looks great. Uh, it's easy to maintain, but, but most importantly, when you're satin finishing a blade, you are going to see whether or not everything that you've done up to that point has been done correctly, right? You're going to see if there's any dips in the blade. You're going to see if there's any wallows. You're going to see ripples. You're going to see a two inch divot. You're going to see all of that stuff, right? If you can see it, I can see it. So when I'm doing the checklist, you know, nothing's going to be, be hidden in a machine finish. I'm going to see it, right? So if you sat and finish your blades, um, at least in the beginning, um, you're, it's going to help you understand whether or not you've actually, you know, gotten everything else done correctly in the, in the setup. All right. So, uh, another thing when I'm looking for consistency of finish, um, is, is along the edge line. Okay. If you bring a blade to me and it's finished really nicely, but you've got a secondary sharpening bevel that's three millimeters up the blade. Um, that's, that's not right. That's not ideal. It, your blade has been, you know, left way too thick, right? And even if you have that thing razor sharp, um, it's, it's going to cut like a splitting ax. It's, it's not going to cut nice. It's not going to slice nice. It's not going to do what it needs to do. Okay. So, um, you know, sharpening is a, uh, a very, very big, um, area, the technicalities of sharpening, um, you know, are, are often discussed, uh, I think sometimes overworked, um, or, or overthought, um, you know, uh, so the number one thing with, with sharpening is going to be, um, the initial setup and grind on your, uh, knife, right? Is that blade been ground? thin enough. Um, 
Oftentimes, if, if a new maker is having trouble sharpening um, a blade, it's not because of their sharpening technique, it's because of the way the fact, you know, how the blade was set up in the first place. Um, so, um, uh, I actually have a, a something I was, I actually have a knife um, here that I'm gonna talk about a little bit uh, as far as sharpening goes, because a lot of people say, you know, how do you sharpen knives? What do you do? And there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I actually just sharpened um, a knife for a friend of mine today um right and so you know home cook global knife um you know whoops not in there okay right nice and sharp okay this is uh 400 grit slack belt and then it's been leather stropped on a leather strop with white diamond right cuts great shaves hair cuts tomatoes slices the paper but are you hearing this? And stopping, you seeing that? That's because there's chips all through this blade, right? Um, I love my friend Dealey, um, but sh no matter what I tell her, she drops her knives in the sink, she cuts on glass plates, and she puts them in the dishwasher. So her knife is chipped, right? That's real world conditions, right? Um, that's what happens to knives out in real life. Okay, so one thing to keep in mind when you're sharpening a knife is, you know, it's going to go out to someone in the world and that can be irritating, right? So I've put this photo of a puppy up so that we could all cheer up about things and sharpening and <laughs> the thing's crazy. Look, it's winking. It's just nuts. <laughs> anyway, um, all right, next slide. Okay, handle. Um, I'll cover key aspects of hand design, construction, and finishing to help you build a knife which feels good in the hand and looks good to the eye. Okay. All right. Next one, please, Karin. Okay. On the checklist, effective grip length, um, 95 to 100 millimeters. Okay. Um, this is a general guideline. Okay. The, um, the, the effective grip length is not the length of your handle, right? The effective grip length is the distance that the red line is showing, okay? It's the distance between the guard and the end of the knife that your hand can actually fit into, okay? Now, I've actually got very small hands, right? I'm not a big guy and I don't have big hands. And when I first started making knives, I was making knives for me. And the first time I got to a show and a whole bunch of, you know, fairly big blokey guys um, had um, um, picked up my knives, the handle was just about disappearing in them. And that's when I started to learn about, you know, ergonomics and grip and, you know, that there's a lot of different hands in the world and you need to make a knife that is going to actually work with the average person. Okay. And so for a knife of this size, um, 95 to 100 millimeters is is an effective grip length um and and when you think about it the bigger a knife gets it your hand size doesn't change right so when you see a really really giant knife with a really really you know with a proportionally big handle to it that's you know say six inches long or 130 mil long or something like that um that's actually a matter of of design and proportion 
the the grip length on a on a big knife doesn't necessarily need to change. So that's a design that uh, you know that's a design that something about design that you have to keep in mind, right? So when you're doing your drawings of your knives, try and shoot for your advertised knife of a grip length of 95 to 100 mil. That's going to fit the average person. Um, cut like I said, cut it out in cardboard. Uh, see what it feels like. Another thing you see new makers do that and that reflects, you know, uh, relates to to grip length is um, if you've got uh, a certain length piece of steel, right, and you draw a blade on it, the blade that you want to make, and you grind out the blade, and then all of a sudden, all you've got is 85 millimeters of steel left to do the handle you're going to end up with a three finger knife and it's going to be completely inappropriate. Okay. So, um, when you build a knife, it's strangely enough, prioritize the handle over the blade. You need, everybody needs an effective handle on a knife and then, you know, make the blade after that. If you've only got a certain amount of piece of steel left, if you're going from scratch, obviously design the whole knife, you know, as you want to design it and work it out from there. Okay. So effective grip length. All right, Karn. Okay. Contouring even and symmetrical. I didn't get photos of the knife that I was actually building. Unfortunately, I forgot to get these photos. So these are stock photos of another knife. So that's why it's black and not timber. It's black micarta. All right. What I'm showing in this photo here is, is how I approach um, even and symmetrical contouring. All right. Doesn't show up very well in this photo, but I actually have a center line down the center of this handle. What I've done with this knife is I have taken the blade and I have propped it up on a set of one, two, three blocks. Uh, if you don't know what one, two, three blocks are, Google them. Um, and you can, I think they're available. Actually, I know they're available at Gamico. Um, one, two, three blocks are really handy to have in the shop for all this kind of setup work. Um, I've put the blade up on a one, two, three blocks so is suspended in the air. And then I've taken a height gauge with a pencil tape to this to it, and I and I've zipped around the outside profile of the knife, giving me a center line that relates to the blade itself. Then I've I've flipped the knife over the other way, and I've drawn that center line again. That way, if the handle um, somehow when I've glued it up is slightly off center or offset to one side, those lines will immediately tell me whether or not my handle material is where it needs to be and whether or not it's even on both sides. And I'm going to grind to those lines. The other thing that this hand, this is showing you is that, um, Karin, if you drop one photo back, um, this handle has been blocked out on a contact wheel. All right. You can see the hollows along the handle. Um, so I've actually, I've actually ground those in on a contact wheel. And I'm going to grind the handle in a sequential order, right? I'm going to go through a series of steps and I'm going to do what I do to one side. I'm going to do the other. I'm actually going to have a plan when I do this. Um, I don't know if you've ever, anybody out there has seen or read the, the Barney and Loveless book, How to Make Knives. Thing's been around for probably 35 years, maybe, I don't know, I think at least 35 years. Probably still the best book on knife making that's ever been written. If you can get a copy of it, get a copy of it. Actually goes through how to actually make knives in a, in, a, in a number of different methods. I learned this in that book. Uh, this is how Loveless actually grinds out his handle shapes, right? Um, so when you grind a handle, um, the number one thing that I see newbies do is they go at it without a plan and they just start 
pecking away at the handle, trying to get to the to a shape, right? You're going to get lost, right? You got to have a you got to have a plan. You got to have um, a, a series of steps that's going to get you where you need to go. Okay. Um, so for me, um, I will, like I said, I'll block it out on the, on the wheel. I'll put my hollows in. Um, I will put all my hour glassing in that way. Um, and then once I have blocked my shape out, um, and I've got my center lines that I'm working to, and I'm checking, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm trusting the center lines, but I'm also checking the handle as I go down the blade to make sure that everything's even on both sides. Um, then I'm going to start a series of steps of whatever facets are left. I'm going to knock those facets off. And then once those facets are knocked off evenly on both sides, and I know, you know, I'm even, I'm still working evenly then I'm going to go and then I'm going to start contouring. I'm going to start rounding everything. Right. So everything is done in this series of progressive steps, um, you know, with a plan um, as best you can. Something that I suggest for, for, for new makers, if you, and, and even for experienced makers, I, I do this myself. If you come up with a new handle design um, in, instead of trying to work it out on the grinder, on the finished knife, and then not kind of know where you're going with it, draw it out uh, on a, on a piece of two by four, right? It's free. You got probably got, you know, heaps of it laying around in the shed. Draw it out on two by four, take the two by four down or four by two or, you know, whatever you got. It depends on where you are in the world. Um, bandsaw it or grind it down to the thickness of the handle material that you're going to be working with. Um, I always, you know, for a hunter handle, I like a piece of handle block that's like about 28 millimeters thick. I'll actually machine my material down to that thickness. So I have always have a starting point that I like if I can. Um, and, and do a practice run, right? Uh, take that piece of two by four, cut out your handle shape, and then go through a series of progressive steps on your grinder to get to the final shape that you want to. If you don't, you know, if it, you may find out that you don't like the handle shape, it might not feel good in your hand. Um, but it will, it will give you an order of operations to get to the handle shape that you want to. And basically, you know, it'll be free. Like, you know, it doesn't, it, you can use the same grinding belt for uh, uh, 20 handles, you know, that you're going to mock up um, and, and it's not going to go dull. Right. So it's, it's basically free practice and it's a way of stepping you through a new handle shape and a new design to help you get to where you're going. Um, what else? Okay. Another thing, and, and um, this is difficult to see in this photo, you can see it later in later photos, but I'll talk about it now because it, it actually makes a lot of sense um, at this point. Um, I pre-shape my guard before the knife is assembled, right? If I'm gonna grind all this handle into one piece, I'm gonna use a guard template, right? Um, and I'm gonna actually pre-shape the guard before I glue the knife up, right? Now, the template looks like that, right? It's half the shape of the guard that I wanna make. And it's got a notch in it. And that notch wraps around the ricasso of the blade, right? So once the blade is, once the guard is fitted on there, I can put that template up against the guard and wrap it around the ricasso and I can scribe the face of the guard. Then I can flip the template over to the other side of the blade and I can scribe the other side of the guard, right? 
what that does is a couple of things. One, it gives me a template to work to when I'm grinding the handle, right? It gives me, uh, it, well, it, it gives me a stopping point and a starting point. Number two, I've got a lot of the material of the guard out of the way before I've started shaping the handle. Um, and I've, I've removed that material from the guard while it's not on the blade. And I don't have to worry about getting the guard hot while I'm doing it, right? I've, I've, I've just wasted all of that material off. Um, and if I, you know, color the face of the guard or I scratch the face of the guard while I'm doing it, I can refinish the face of the guard before it's permanently mounted onto the knife where I'm going to have trouble getting to it again, right? So um, the guard is shaped. My, my finger notch is actually removed already as well before it's on the knife, before the knife is glued up for the same reason. I don't want to get rid of the bulk of that material while it's actually on the knife so that I can't discolor the face of the guard. Like I said, I can't get you know my glue joint hot because I'm not really removing hardly all that much material, okay? Um, and then when I'm grinding my handle shape, I'm, I'm going to the guard, which is already pre-shaped, it's already even, um, and the front end of the handle is already predetermined. And everything that I'm gonna do after that is gonna just stack backwards from there, okay? So um, that, that might help you a little bit as far as consistency in your handle shaping goes and your contouring goes. Okay. Um, whoop. And next. Okay. Um, this is basically just, you know, showing symmetrical scales on a full tang knife. I actually find it a lot easier to keep things symmetrical on a full tang knife because you have a permanent guideline down the middle of the, of the handle, right? Um, you've got something that you can measure off center distance. Um, you've got, you know, you've got a constant visual reference the whole time that you're working with it. Um, in this photo, one of the things about, about shaping and ergonomics and the handle is even though they look square in this particular photo, all of the edges of this knife have been cracked and it's been rounded, right? You never want, unless it's very, very specific, like a wah handle or something like that, or you're making a dog bone bowie or a coffin hilt design, for your average working knife, you always want to have your edges broken, cracked, rounded, radius, comfortable, okay? Um, so, you know, we're, look for symmetry, look for comfort, um, work your handle shapes out, practice your handle shapes, um, use guidelines, and I think that should probably help, you know, quite a bit. Okay, handle ergonomics. Um, comfortable in a variety of positions, okay? This is personal choice, um, but when I design a handle, particularly for a working knife, um, or, you know, I'm designing a, a knife for the table, I want it to fit as many com people comfortably as it possibly can. You see a lot of people, you know, sometimes they pick up a knife like this, like you're picking up a hammer. You can pick up a knife like that, but you seldom, if ever, use a knife like that. You know, you're gonna, you, you always have a variety of grips when you use a knife. So when you, when you design a knife handle or you do a dummy handle or whatever, practice holding it in um, a number of positions, you know. Um, if you do any hunting or you know a hunter, um, you know, people that go hunting a lot, they use a knife, a knife in all kinds of different positions. Hand it to them. 
tell them to actually honestly critically feel it in their hand, play with it, work with it. Does it, does it work in a variety of positions? Is it comfortable in a variety of, of, of handholds? Um, um, this is not something that's pass or fail. Um, I'm personally not a big fan of, you know, really design, you know, really, really defined four finger, uh, finger groove knives. Uh, I think they're very limited in the way that they can be used. They're really only comfortable in one position. Um, so when you're, when you're designing your handle, when you're thinking about your handle, thinking about, you know, it being used in a, in a variety of positions in a variety of ways, isn't it? And it, is it comfortable in all of those? Okay. Um, okay. Consistency of finish in your handle. All right. Another big area. This one photo covers a lot of stuff. Um, there are a variety of surfaces in one area. Okay. And there's a variety of material in one area. There is a, it, there are a lot of finishing directions in one small area. Okay. You're going from wood to spacer, to stainless, to micarta, to stainless, you know, onto the guard. All right. And this is a lot of, this is a problem area for a lot of people. Things that you'll be looking for. Um, no gaps, uh, no glue lines. Um, even if there isn't a gap, uh, you know, there's blacks that, that knife has black spacers. Maybe you figured out to use black epoxy to make your life easier. Well, that's fine. Um, but if the spacer is tapered, um, you know, or it's not even from one side to the other, even if there's not a gap, it's clearly not been glued up flat and straight. Okay. So we're looking for, um, no gaps. All your spacers are straight and even unless they're tapered on purpose, uh, you know, as part of the design of the handle. Um, we're going to be looking for things like, you know, washout. If you've got a soft handle material up against a stainless guard, uh, have you undercut the handle material? Um, have you gotten all your scratches out of both materials evenly? Uh, if you're having trouble with washout, um, once again, you know, the old school advice was, you know, if you're having trouble, do it by hand, you know, you'll get it right by hand. Honestly, if I have to do a lot of work by hand, um, I'm not adverse to work by hand, but if I can do it on a machine, honestly, I'm probably going to do it faster and I'm also going to do it flatter and I'm probably going to do it more consistently on a machine up to a certain point, right? I don't want to touch a handle on a knife by hand until I'm at a minimum of 600 grit. You know, usually when I'm hand sanding a handle, I'm starting at 600 grit, 1200 grit, something like that. Uh, I'm going to do the rest of it off of a machine. Um, use and, and try and use a variety of backing materials when you do your hand sanding. Um, poundo board, leather poundo board, which is like a hard rubber mat. Uh, sanding sticks with, with leather glued to them uh, help. Um, I do a lot of work uh, in finer grip belts, J-flex belts in, with slack belt grinding. Um, with, you know, with no platen behind it. Uh, if you've got a rotary platen, you know, that can help an awful lot. Um, hand sanding with nothing backing the paper is the fastest way I can guarantee that you will start to get undercuts in your handle material. All right. Um, so, right. The other, sorry, I was just giving a time check. Uh, um, the other thing that we're looking for is, you know, there's a lot of changes of direction in this, in this one area. You've got the guard curving, 
in, in, in the direction of the actual shape of the guard. You've got the finger notch. That's one going in one direction. You're sanding the wood um, a certain direction. The stainless spacers look polished in another direction. So you're looking for consistency of finish. And once again, this is going to be something that you're going to have to work out for your knives and how you work. Okay. So for me, for these knives, for what, what I've settled on, you don't have to settle this, but this is something that I've come to, you know, with my knife making. And, and when I make a knife like this, the finger guard underneath is mirror polished, right? And it's mirror polished, A, because it looks nice. It's a nice accent. But also, B, I can polish the underside of the guard and I can polish the handle material and the spacers and the, and the micarta in this particular case, I can polish it all at the same time and I can get one even consistent finish. I don't like the outside of my guard mirror polished. It, it doesn't work for me, right? As a look, I, I find it marks up easily. It scratches easy. Even you can see it when it goes in and out of the shape. So what I do is that once I have it mirror polished, I'm then gonna take masking tape and I'm gonna tape off right up against the guard, right where that first black spacer is behind the, behind the 10 millimeters of stainless steel, right? I'm gonna tape that off with masking tape. Then I'm gonna take a folded up piece of 400 grit, probably black ice or 600 grit black ice paper. Um, and I'm gonna take my thumb and I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna push all the way up and around and over the guard. And I'm gonna get that satin finish going the other direction, right? Um, the, the, the face of the guard is, is still taped off at this point, right? The very face of the guard, uh, where it butts up against the blade, that's still, that's protected with masking tape. Every surface that you finish, make sure you, uh, protect it as well as you possibly can, as long as you can, right? Don't finish a surface and then leave it unprotected to get scratched and then have to go back and fix it later. Because I guarantee you, if I scratch the face of the guard, once the knife is assembled, it's never going to be as good as it was. If I hadn't, if I just left it sat and finished when I assembled the knife, right? So always protect your finished surfaces. So the face of the guard is taped, the handle is taped. I go around and I sat and finish the guard until I'm happy with it, right? And then once it is, I can pull the tape off the rest of the handle, um, use a very, very light bit of, of oil on a rag if I've got any residue or something like that, when I, you know, like uh, a camellia oil or uh, something non-solvent. I'm not going to go at it and attack it with WD-40. I'm going to use like a baby oil, for example. Clean any tape residue off and I'll call it good, right? So I'm going to protect each surface as I go. Um, uh, okay, excellent. The other thing to worry about in this picture as well is right where the arrow is pointing, the, the front edge of the guard. I see this a lot. Um, the front edge of the guard needs to be broken, right? It needs to be ever so slightly radius there. You don't want a sharp edge to the guard there. It's not comfortable on your hand. It scrapes into the way on the way on the sheath. See a lot of people when they, you know, when they grind the knife, they grind the handle, they grind the guard together, and then they go, oh, wow, what do I do now? I've got this sharp edge. What do I do with it? Okay. Once again, the, the face of the guard is taped off. It's protected. Um, use good quality masking tape, you know, make sure it's really stuck down nicely. And then that front edge of the guard, I'm going to actually hit that. Um, and also the blade is taped up. The spine is well protected. Um, and I'm going to go around and I am just going to take that edge off the face of it on a 600 grit J flex belt. And I'm going to, and you know, I'm going to go really, really, really lightly. And I'm going to go really, really carefully. And then I'm going to go with the Scotch-Brite wheel and then I'm going to polish it, right? And that is just the edge that goes around the face of the guard. 
Okay, it's those three steps just to break that. Everything else is taped off. And this is independent of the satin finishing what I'm saying. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do the final satin finish. And that's going to break the front edge of that guard. For me, the only place on a knife that should be sharp is the edge, right? I don't want a square 90 degree sharp corner on the spine. I'm going to break that ever so slightly. I don't want a square sharp edge on the face of the guard. I'm going to break that, okay? Um, it, it, it doesn't have to be much, but it just has to be cracked and it has to be comfortable. If you're not comfortable doing it on a belt, take an icy pole stick and some double-sided double tape or take an icy pole stick and, and some spray adhesive and spray adhesive down some 600 grit or some 400 grit paper and go along and just, you know, basically file along the front edge of that and just crack that corner and then hit it on the buff. All right. Um, Shield transitions all fits tight and seamless. All edges are thin and grown. Yep. Right. This one. Okay. Uh, the final one on the checklist in this is pins well fit, flush, scorch free with material or evenly domed. Okay. Another easy problem area. Um, you know, you see the back handle, the head, back side of the handle has blowout where somebody's drilled through it and, and chunked it out, or the handle pinhole has been really tight and they've driven the, um, uh, you were, they, you know, they've driven the pin in and they've blown a bit of handle material out. There's a ring around the pin, uh, where it's been scorched, you know, cause the pin's gotten hot because you've used a dull belt to flush it off. There's, there's a lot of problems area or very, very commonly, um, the pin sticking up and the handle materials wallet out around it. Okay. Um, the, the best things that the, the things that I find that make this the easiest um, is, you know, if it's a convex surface, uh, finishing it on a disc sander with a rubber pad um, or finishing it on a fairly stiff uh, J flex belt. Um, no, I'm sorry. That's an oxymoron, a stiff J flex belt. Um, you know, a, a J flex belt that's got a fair bit of tension on it, right? So it's forming a fairly flat, tense surface. Another thing that I do with my pins is I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll cut them off and I'll peen them in carefully. Um, and then I will go over and I will go on a, uh, on a small contact wheel, like a two inch contact wheel so that the surface of the contact wheel is sticking out with lots of clearance. And I will go and I will flush the pin down as close as I possibly can to the surface on that contact wheel. Uh, it's even going to put a tiny little hollow in it and I'm going to get it as close to the handle material as I possibly can um, before I start trying to grind it off with a, with a J flex belt. Uh, ordinarily I can get it close enough that, you know, I might even be able to finish that pin at 400 grit on a J flex belt um, and, and finish it. Right. Another thing to worry about is, is your pin actually round. Okay. If you peen, uh, peen evenly, Pin all the way around, work your way around the pin. Don't, don't just whale the snot at it and, and end up turning it into an oval shape because you've peened more on one side and you've, or, or, you know, you've, you've, um, you know, you've gotten it mushroomed over so far that you're not aware that underneath this thing is bulging on one side and then you flush it off and now you've got this, you know, oval pin shape. Um, so, you know, pin carefully, keep it round. Um, then when you go to hand sand, once again, don't, don't use just, you know, don't just use, uh, 
wet and dry with nothing backing it because that's going to ride over the hard pin and it's going to cut the softer material, right? So use a backing. Um, I use a stick with, with hard leather glue to it um, or, or rubber. Um, you know, uh, you can get linotype printing material at hobby shops. That's a good one. You can order uh, hydrometer rubber on, on eBay. Um, leather works. Uh, like I said, all of this stuff is things that you need to figure out. Don't, don't be afraid to try um, another uh, you know, try something, try something different. Don't be constantly, endlessly searching for, for solutions, but, but don't be afraid to try plenty of different things in your shop and find out what works for you. Another thing with chip out that's important is, is use good quality, sharp drill bits. Um, you know, uh, another thing, uh, match your drill bits to your pin stock. Okay. Um, I know that sounds strange, but when a new batch of, when you, if you order a batch of pin stock, you know, and you know, I order a couple of dozen sticks at a time so that I've got it for a long time, I will always double check and make sure that that pin stock is, is exactly the size I need it to be. And that the drill bits that I use, which I always use the same drill bits, I buy them in packs of 12. So I've always got the same drill bit. They're going to perform the same. They're going to drill essentially the same size hole. Make sure that pin stock matches to the hole size that, that you're drilling. Um, what else about pins? Um, the other thing, when I drill a pinhole, if I possibly can, I have the handle material oversized when I drill it so that anything out the back, you know, that I've got more material at the back. When you drill through a handle, have a hard backing behind it, um, you know, so that there's material supporting the drill hole when you come out the other end so that you don't blow it out. Uh, another thing that you can do is put a couple of layers of, of thick blue masking tape on the back of the handle side. Like, so if I'm working with, with walrus ivory, it's already to shape and size. There is nothing more to remove. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put a couple of layers of masking tape, uh, right on the walrus ivory, right where the hole is going to come through. And then I'm going to take whatever I can to pack underneath of that. If I've got to make some little wooden wedges or some spacers or a block of something and put it directly under where the hole is as you drill through so that when the drill bit breaks through, it doesn't blow the material out, okay? So just be aware of that as well. Um, and that should just about do it for pins. Okay, except for this one. Guard fit. Um, this could be a whole chat. This could be a whole, a whole demo. Um, the number one thing that I can tell you for guard fits is not the guard. The number one thing I can tell you for guard fits is your blade. Um, you got to have the ricasa of your blade as flat and as parallel and as even and as clean as it possibly can be. Okay. And that's going to make your guard fitting a lot easier. Measure your tang. You got to have your tang tapered, um, you know, and this is, sorry, this is for this knife. This is for a narrow tang construction. In actual fact, this isn't the knife. I forgot to get a guard. I didn't get a picture of the guard fit. So I had this one as, as a, you know, in stock. Um, you want, no gaps uh, or, you know, as close as you possibly can. You want your, where the guard meets up against the shoulders. You don't want any gaps. Not only do you want any gaps along the ricasso of the blade, but you don't want any gaps up against your shoulders as well. Okay. So get yourself a set of, you know, best file blocks that you can carbide if you can um, and, and cut your shoulders in as clean and as crisp as you possibly can. Um, you know, and then, a lot of patience. Um, make sure your ricasso is flat. Make sure your tang is tapered. Make sure your tang is clean. Make sure there's no high spots. 
you know, as you're fitting your guard up, as you slide up the tang, you know, and then all of a sudden it's getting tight. So you file it out more. And then all of a sudden it gets over this high spot and it drops down and it's loose as a goose. Right. So when you set your knife up, you know, set it up so that it's accurate as possibly can, you know, the tang, the tang of the knife is hidden in the handle. Um, and you don't think it's ever going to be seen again. There's still a lot of reasons why it should be clean and neat and tidy. It's going to make your life easy. So, um, you know, when it comes to guard, the other thing too is, you know, satin finish the face of your guard before you mount it on the knife. Right. I know that sounds obvious, but I have seen people put them on not cleaned and then try and clean it when it's on the knife and the blades in the way, like it's going to be a lot easier set and finish that guard if there's nothing in your way. Okay. Um, I th that about, yeah. Next one. Okay. We're just going to recap design. We talked about it in the, in the drawing stage, you know, in the very beginning of the presentation, but it is the last thing on the checklist, the, the four points. Um, and we'll just cover it off quickly. Okay. Is the knife fit for purpose? Uh, you know, does the knife make sense in what it is that you want it to be? Um, I'll tell you an illustration of when it's not. Uh, at one year's guild show, we had a category for kitchen knives. This was before kitchen knives was, was um, popular. And there's no knives in there. There's no knives in the category, literally zero. And one older gentleman in the group who's now passed away, and he was a lovely man, um, he thought he had himself a, an award in the bag. So he put a four inch drop point hunter in there that had a brass guard and it had an antler handle. And for whatever reason, bless his cotton socks, he thought it was a good idea to put a piece of stag on this knife that was this long and both tines of the antler were still there. So this thing stood up like a tripod, like you could set it down in any position, it wouldn't fall over. It was like a weeble wobble. It didn't win, strangely enough. It was completely not fit for purpose. You know, it was not a kitchen knife in any way, shape, or form. And it was screamingly obvious that that was the case. Okay. So, you know, if you're building a hunting knife, have a good look at good designs for hunting knives. If you're building a kitchen knife, you know, look at tried and tested, look at Sabatier, look at Japanese knives, look at some of, you know, some, some knives from makers that you really admire. Is the knife fit for purpose? Then when you make your knife, use it, you know cut with it, use it for its intended purpose. Um, if, you know, uh, if you make a kitchen knife, use it in the kitchen, be honest with yourself. Is this thing, is this design that I've made? Is it, is it working the way I want it to work? Okay. Flown aesthetics. This is very personal choice. Um, it's like art, uh, you know, can you define art? No, but I know when I see it, um, look at knives of makers that you admire and try and figure out what it is about that knife that works. And then, you know, get to know the maker and politely ask some things about their design ethos, you know, what it is that makes their knives, their knives. Um, you know, does the blade and the handle gel is something at a weird cocked angle? Um, you know, uh, is, you know, do things are, is, are things graceful? Are things subtle? Um, you know, subtlety is always going to be timeless and elegant you know, forever, um, you may come up, if you come up with a completely new design, um, it's, it's probably not going to be very attractive, quite frankly, and probably won't work very well. You can put your tweak on a knife, but you know, aesthetics wise, if you come up with something completely new, good luck to you. I hope it works out well. Um, 
material and weight appropriate. What do we mean by weight? Um, you know, in this case, we're talking about visual weight, you know, do the spacers work in the design? Are they too heavy? Are they clunky? Are they at the wrong angle? Um, material choices, uh, you know, um, does the material suit the knife? You know, have you used a, like I said, a weird piece of stag for a kitchen knife, you know, and it's not a classic carver set, you know, does the material match the intended purpose of the knife? Um, is, you know, and, and, and literal weight, you know, if you've got a, a really, really big, heavy chopping knife and you put a very, very light balsa weight handle on there, um, you know, does it feel right? Is it, is it, a, is it appropriate for the knife? You know, um, once again, these are, these are, um, aesthetic choices and these are personal choices, but, um, you know, after a while you, you know, you get to know whether or not something is, it works well on a knife in the design. Okay. Strength and durability. Okay. This is a really big topic and, and it's an interesting one because there's a lot of things in the knife that when we go to do the guild assessment checklist, we can't actually see, right? So if you've got a, a hidden tang knife on the table, I, I don't know what your tang setup looks like. I don't know whether or not it's big enough. I don't know. Um, I can ask you about your heat treating, but honestly, I may or may not be able to really see whether or not you've done the heat treating right. Some of this is things that we will, you know, as a, as an assessor, we may ask you questions about the knife. You know, how did you build it? What did you build it out of? What materials did you use? Why did you use those materials? You know, what was your heat treating? What did you do? Um, did you send it out for heat treating? Did you do it yourself? Um, you know, we may have to, for, for strength and durability, we may have to ask you some questions. So, um, you know, if you're building a knife, uh, even if you think that you've built this artistic masterpiece that's never going to get used, um, every knife gets used. I've seen, you know, every knife can get used. I have seen four and a half thousand dollar US knives cut through two by fours, chop into them, right? If that knife failed, what an utter embarrassment that would be. So every knife that you build, build it as if it's gonna be used, used hard, okay? And you can't go wrong. Um, Next one. Okay. Questions and answers. If I don't get to say it at the end, I'd like to thank everyone for their attention. I certainly hope this was helpful. Um, I think it, I hope it, um, okay. What about material choices? Keep, keep, keep saying your thanks, Sean. Keep going. Okay, don't no, no. I'm just saying, look, I just want to say thanks for your attention. Thanks for coming along and spending the time. I appreciate you listening. I hope it was helpful and not too painful at parts. Um, and yeah, like I said, thanks a lot. And thanks a lot to the, to, uh, to Karn and Mert and Kev for putting the platform out there and making it available and giving us this time. It's really appreciated. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you very much, Sean. We'll get to the thank yous for you in a minute, but in the meantime, let's get into some questions and answers. Okay. Sure. The people that are listening, uh, there's about, been about 180 generally through the whole presentation, which is a bit of a record for us. Um, I'm sure there's some questions and answers out there. So if you guys have any, now's the time to put them up. The first one we have is from Matt Snape. What about material choice at design stage for blade and handle? Okay, interesting. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the question means, and I hope I answer it. Um, if I don't, chime in again. Okay, I'm going to give you a perfect example. Um, and, and this is something that I should have kind of brought up in the design stage and I didn't, 
if you've got a, you know, if you've got a design in, in your mind and you draw it out on paper um, and you can choose micarta or a big block of wood or whatever, um, you got as much steel as you need, you've got guard material, you can do pretty much the sky's limit. You can do anything you want. Let's say, for example, you've got a piece of stag that you want to use, right? Do not build a blade and then try and put that piece of stag on there. If you've got a piece of stag or, you know, later in your career, if you've got a piece of walrus ivory, it's a certain shape, it's a certain size, it's a certain thickness. You need to design that knife from that piece of handle material outward. Everything design, everything is based on that piece of handle material, the size of the blade, the placement of the tang, um, you know, the, the placement of your fittings, the width of your fittings, um, all of those things. Um, are going to be dependent on that piece of handle material, right? So start with that and and work outward. As far as other material choices for blade and handle, man, the sky's the limit. Um, you know, they're they're just there's endless choices. There's endless supply. You know, there's endless supplies these days. Uh, you know, with 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 uh, artisan knife supplies, Gamico, Karin. Um, right here in Australia, you know, you can get a lot of stuff on your doorstep that you might need within a couple of days. It didn't used to be like that. Uh, uh, at the moment, at the moment, it's not a couple of days. Okay. COVID at, the moment, the world, at the moment, the world's not a normal place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so, you know, um, material choices, you know what I'd actually say in all seriousness now, don't go nuts. Pick, pick, whether, whether you're going to work in stainless, you're going to work in carbon steels, whatever you're going to do, Pick a few materials and get to know them really well, right? Use them, get used to them. Um, and, and man, you know, for example, 1084 steel, simplest, one of the simplest blade forging steels are out there. I'm using it. I'm saying it because it's, it's in my wheelhouse. 1084 and, and, and some micarta, you can make a, a, a caping knife, a skinning knife, a hunting knife, a fighter, a camp chopper Bowie, you can work for the next couple of years and not run out of, and not run out of designs, not run out of opportunities. Okay. So don't get caught up in, in alphabet soup steels and the soup of the day and the steel of the day. Um, get, get used to your materials, use them well. Get all the steels you want. Buy, buy them all. Buy everything. Get caught up in steel wank. I, I buy all made the, a yeah. set of getting caught up in I steel. Apologize, I apologize, Karin. I, I don't know what happened. I might've had a, I, I don't know. Something Sean, ignore Corin. You yeah. gave me that advice several years ago at the Melbourne Knife Show, and I've stuck with it. And I often refer to you as someone that, especially with the 1075 and 1084, when people are like, Ugh, 1075 or 1084, I go, go and have a look at Sean McIntyre's page. And I don't even say anything else. I go, go and have a look at Sean's page. And you, you've got master smiths using no steels. There's nothing wrong with them. Yeah, no, no, and, nothing at all. But we're gonna, we've got a lot of questions here, guys. Okay, we yeah. have to get through them. So, um, Glenn Beaton says, "Do you have to have a Ricasso?" Uh, no, depends on the depends on the design of the knife. It's utterly that's all fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Best way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, this is this is a good one. For the purpose of the podcast, what's the best way to clean glue from the blade when you get it squeezed out without leaving scratches after matte finish? Okay, um, I'm assuming you're talking about maybe squeezing out either at at the front of the handle scales on a full tang knife or out the front of the guard or whatever. Okay, um, what I like to do is um, 
protect as much of the blade as I can. In my case, I use a single layer of toilet paper and tape. Uh, I use it so it's not too too bulky. And that gets me from, that just errant, you know, splashes up the end of the blade. So hopefully I'm only having to clean up as little as possible. Um, I do a couple of things. One, um, I will actually lightly oil the blade and the front face of the guard before I do my glue up. So if I get any glue up, there's already a small film of oil there. The epoxy will push any oil out of the way. So I'm not worried about the sealed joint. Um, and then what I'll do is I've got uh, Q-tips and I will actually pull the cotton on the end of the Q-tip. So it's a little bit fluffed up and pulled out and puffy. And then I will dip it in baby oil. And then I will very carefully run it along either the front of the handle scale or I'll run it along the, you know, the junction between the, um, the, the blade and the face of the guard. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll squeegee it out. Um, and I won't keep rubbing back and forth. I'll flip the two Q-tip and use the other end and do the other side as cleanly as I can. And then I'm going to go around with, with, with loo roll and baby oil, and I'm going to wipe down the face of the guard. And then I'm going to turn the blade and I'm going to wipe it in the direction of the satin finish. I'm not going to rub sideways across the Ricasso because if you pick up an errant bit of grit, you know, you, you, things are going to go pear-shaped. Um, I also use toothpicks sometimes. You know, if you're in the very corner, you can sharpen a toothpick. If you've got a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of glue left and you can just, you know, use it as a scraper to walk along. Brilliant. Thank you, Sean. Another one. This one's Anthony Kittle. How much taper should you have on a tapered tang or full for full membership? How much taper should you have? Lots. All of it. Um, <laughs> if, if, seriously, if, you, if, you, if you're going to taper a tang, and you should always taper tangs. Sorry, I'm going to go out on, well, it's not even a limb. I'm just going to say it. If it's a full tang knife, taper the tang. If you can if you can successfully achieve a flat tang and accurately put scales on it, you can achieve a taper tang and put scales on it, right? So I taper as thin, and I suggest you taper as thin as you possibly can. If you're going to taper it, taper it. Um, you know, I go all the way down to, you know, I've gone, I've been ridiculous, okay, a couple of times as a sort of a, a, a challenge, and I've probably tapered it down to, 15 thou um but you know um, yeah 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 it bent it kept, I, I it bent i dropped it and it bent all over the place i had to straighten it it was a silly thing to do but it was it was a challenge that had been put out i would say down to maximum 1.6 mil an inch 1.6 mil next question i don't yes. own a grinder i hand file my knives should i still submit them for guild assessment, or should I wait until I get a grinder? Great question. Great question. Great question. Um, however, you can get the job done and get it done successfully is 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 absolutely valid. If you don't have a grinder and you're and you're filing your knives, my suggestion is is that you pick a, a, a if if you're forging, fine. If you're if you're doing stock removal with a file, pick a stainless steel um, so that you can file it fully to shape, hand finish it as best you can. And then if, if you don't have a grinder, I'm assuming you don't have your own heat treating oven, send it out for professional heat treating, get it vacuum furnace heat treated. And that way it can come back to you um, uh, straight, even, clean, not warped, and in the condition that you send it out in. The only problem that I find with, with files is, is that um, you always come up against heat treating. What do you do after you've heat treated it? You still got to file it, right? If all you got is files. So the problem is, is that, you know, you're probably going to leave a fairly thick edge on there um, because you're filing it and then you got to leave material for heat treating. 
Um, so you're just going to have to do a lot of work afterwards with, with, with stones of some kind um, to try and get that, that edge down to the finished thickness that you need it to be. But if you can get the job done and get it done cleanly with files and hand sandpaper, absolutely submit. All right. The next one is from Carnage Creations, Paul Fontanini from Western Australia. Is it predictable to have three different styles of knives for your assessment, hidden tang, full tang, kitchen, etc. cetera? Uh, for probationary, we ask that you have at least one knife that's different. Like two knives can be the same, but we're asking to show, a, you know, don't come with three of the exact same knives, okay? Do one uh, style that's different, um, just to show that you've got a range of skills. Um, you, you know, but you don't have to have, you know, three entirely different knives or three entirely different construction techniques. All right. Andy B says, how do you put a question up on the screen? Ask a good question in the comments. Ask a question. You did it. Nailed it. Way to go, Andy. Uh, I don't know. Uh, probably uh, over the years, without doubt, somebody. I, I'm, I'm assuming someone has, and it's perfectly, perfectly doable. Um, <clears throat> if you've made that if shifty blades, if you've made that knife, and you don't have a grinder, absolutely join because that's that looks really clean from here. Yep. There you go. So Jump Niels Vandenberg to, um... from Sunny Johannesburg in South Africa asks, "Can anyone join the Australian Knife Makers Guild?" Niels, how you doing, buddy? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we have we have foreign membership. Yep. If, Jump on to Dick Edwards' question there, Corin, about the pins. I'm coming. I'm coming. It's coming. Yep. One at a time. You're up. Does a guild knife have to have a pin because it's part of judging assessment? Somewhere, um, somewhere, when you show come for guild assessment and you show a variety of knife construction techniques, personally. Um, I'd, I'd actually have to get a ruling on that. I honestly, I'd have to go back through and, and read everything. Um, doesn't absolutely, doesn't say that a pin, and if there's no knives, they, without a pin, they fail. Um, but when you're showing a variety of construction techniques, I would, I would strongly suggest that you be able to show that you can put it in a knife. All right. Next one. Pierre says, what are some essential, small, useful tools which you'd consider important or good to have? Oh, good lord! I've seen your workshop, Sean. This is a this is an open-ended question. This one. Yeah, I'm a tool. I'm a tool junkie. I like tools. Um, okay, what do you need? You need a okay on my bench at all times. I have got um, I've got a nice sharp scribe, right? I've got a black sharpie marker. I've got a mechanical pencil. I've got a really good quality six inch uh, rule, stainless steel, Toledo brand is my favorite, metric and imperial, but I would just get metric if I was you so that you can do accurate measurements. A set of uh, digital electronic veneers, you can get them on e e Evil Bay for 20, 30 bucks, something like that for measuring. Um, you always need at least one or two good quality flat files at all times, a center punch, a small hammer, um, a nice quality square of some kind, either fixed or adjustable. Uh, and that really will get you a lot of knives made. After that, we're talking about, you know, consumables, drill bits, mm. sandpaper. And nice to have things. Oh, a bench? Uh, absolutely. Before anything else, you need a space that you can make knives, right? You need some sort of sturdy bench. You need a vise. 
you need a little bit of space to set up your stuff. That's an absolute minimum. After that, the sky's the limit. You're just going to build from there. Great. Niels Vandenberg, again from South Africa, says removing weight from a full tang, drill or hollow grind? I hollow grind. Uh, honestly, but for me, everything that, okay, everything that I make is, is forged. So um, I forge all my tapers in, right? So it's not really a question for me. If I was making full tang knives, stock removal, um, I would probably suggest that I find hollow grinding faster than, than, than a drill. Um, but you can do a bit of both. And also if you hollow grind down the tang, it uh, like, like drilling holes, it, it increases the surface area of your glue bond. Excellent. Uh, Mark Sinclair, I'm just going to, most of the hellos I'm skipping, but for this one, I'm not. It's uh, Bruce Barnett, Mark Sinclair, Leo Damasco. Hey, there you go, guys. Bridgetown, say hello. So Good evening. 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 <laughs> Thanks for joining in. Uh, Is the beer o'clock over there, there yet, fellas? Uh, You're welcome. Just, um, oh, there's heaps of people thanking you, mate. And uh, Mark Sinclair's got a question. Does one of the full membership knives need to specifically have to have metal bolsters on a full tang? No, it does not necessarily have to be, to my understanding at this point, and I will clarify this and put it somewhere. I should have this up in front of me, but there's too many things on the screen. There has to be a metal to metal fit, okay? So uh, if that is a, a guard on a hidden tang, a metal guard on a hidden tang knife, or if that's metal bolsters on a full tang knife, there's somewhere in the construction, there has to be a metal to metal fit. Uh, I believe that is the requirement. I don't think it has to be metal metal bolsters on a full tang knife specifically. Cool. And uh, the next one, I wonder if it's an automatic fail if you submit a Serbian chef's knife. Ha ha. Yeah, should be. Next one. Serbian <laughs> knife. But I, I believe that's an inside joke that I'm not getting. No, that's yeah, all right. Don't worry so, about it. Let's leave it. Serbian knife for assessment have to have a sheath. No. Uh, no, it does not. But it, it, there's nothing specifically on the checklist about a sheath. Um, if you bring a sheath along, it'll get looked at, maybe, but it, it doesn't actually count against the assessment now. Niels is going to buy us a beer at Blade Show. Niels, not if we buy you one first. If we ben get Chapman. to Blade Show. Yeah, yeah, I would very it. much look forward to that, Niels. I would very much enjoy that. Niels, Are there any unfortunately, issues one beer is not going to be enough. <laughs> Are, you, Are, you, Are there any issues using a single steel for assessment knives, e.g. one type of stainless no. for all three. Absolutely not. No. None at all. Uh, Amy Conti asks, any other tips for washout and getting pins and guards flush apart from leather on the sanding pad? Okay. Um, I use as much as I possibly can on any surface that's convex, okay? And I'd say that a lot because you have to really – you know, your, your, how you, uh, how you attack your surfaces is very much, uh, appropriate to what those surfaces are. So sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. If you pour yourself a drink on this show, you have to show what you're drinking. It's, it's, it's water. Oh, sorry. Vodka. Well done, Dry. Sean. Vodka. I, I think it was like 90 minutes straight. So like, <laughs> you've done well, you've done well. Sorry. Keep going. Amy Condon's question. Um, okay. Uh, any guard material, pin material, if I can possibly get to it with a disc, uh, a disc sander, I will. And the disc will have like an eighth inch thick rubber pad on it as a little bit of a backing. 
Um, it what's that in really, what's that in Australian? Uh, which one? One eight. Oh, sorry, three mil. Uh, three mil. Three point one two five. Two point five. Three yeah. mil. Some some sort of, uh, you know, fairly dense rubber backing. Um, any it, basically on a disc, you can't wash the surface out. It's a big, broad, flat surface. You can gouge one edge by by hoeing into it on the edge of the disc. That's a separate issue, but you can't you can't uh, wallow out the handle material on a disc. Barring that, always try and work at a, sorry, this is weird. I'm trying to show an angle. Always work across at an angle uh, is also helpful, right? So if you're grinding a knife blade, work at an angle to your platen so that you're, you're going across the, the broadest surface area that you possibly can. You know, I'm not gonna grind the handle material and the guard like this because I'm putting high pressure on one specific spot. You know, I'm gonna grind it on an angle and try and rotate across the largest, broadest surface area mm. that I can to keep right. the surfaces flush, right? Uh, and use sharp abrasives. Dull abrasives are a pig. Okay, uh, Patrick Kennedy, I've used my set of Valorb hardness files to guess the hardness of knives I've made. Is this method good enough for guild membership? Um, you're like Valorb hardness file test files, you mean? I'm assuming. Yeah, test, hardness test files, yeah. Look, this is this is up to you. Um, you know, I, I don't have a. I'm not going to Rockwell test your knife when it comes in. Okay. What's more important to me is have you, you know, for you as a maker, have you physically tested your knives? Um, you know, look up brass rod edge flex test on the internet. You know, actually taking your knife and and flexing it over a brass rod in in the in the vise. See if the edge flexes and comes back. Chop with it. Cut with it. Does it hold an edge? Does the edge roll? Does the edge chip? Those are more practical. Those are far more practical concerns than whether or not it's actually 59 Rockwell or 58 Rockwell. You know, use your knives, test your knives. But yes, having a set of Valorbi hardness testers is, is a good ballpark. Yes. Okay. Can your knives be mailed to the state rep for assessment? Go for it. Sure. Yes. Particularly at this time, you know, I can't have, I can't have people come for the last, you know, almost six months, I haven't had been able to have anybody come for knife assessment. Um, so yes, or if you're in WA, we don't expect you to drive, you know, for a day to get there. Let's let's put some caveats on that. Adam Fromholtz is currently ACT and New South Wales, as was I in a previous lifetime. So yes, send your knives through. But, but your risk, your right? risk, your risk, your responsibility, and do include a prepaid satchel to send them back. Yeah, please okay? send and have them. Okay, first of all, make sure they're packed securely. Try and ensure they can be repacked in a way that's easy for us to repack them in securely. Um, uh, and and also a self-addressed prepaid satchel is is only is more than you know that's fair. Yeah. One more from Nick Peppers. Uh, we'll call this the last question. We'll yeah. start wrapping up. Nick Pepper Sergio says, do you recommend any type of knife sharpener or do you do all your sharpening on your belt grinder? Um, I do a lot. Uh, these days I'm doing a lot on a belt and then I go, I, I actually quite like a leather strop um, or a ceramic crock stick. Um, it really, honestly, it, it entirely depends on you, what you get used to, what you like using. Um, uh, you know, I like ceramic stones. I've got a beautiful 
Belgian blue stone I use sometimes for kitchen knives particularly. Um, but you, sharpening is, is, is a vexed issue. That's why I put the puppy up because it's fun. Um, you gotta, you gotta figure out what works for you in your shop. Try a variety of things. Uh, ask what other people use. See if you can borrow someone else's equipment, you know, like a DMT yeah. stone, um, and, and just see what works for you. All right. Awesome. So that's, uh, that's the last question for tonight. Show me. Appreciate your time. Before we go to a proper thank you, I'm just going to say another few words about the sponsorship. If, again, Gamaco is offering nine scholarships, which is worth $150 each for guild membership per year um, for the 2021 year, uh, based on the best of the best that are submitted in the next three months. We're also offering a $50 gift voucher at Gamaco Artisan Supplies for anybody that successfully joins the guild um, not successfully joins before Christmas, but has the assessment knives in the hands of the state reps prior to uh, prior to the end of the year. So um, and and is subsequently successful in joining. So we just it, however many people join, we set up to seventy. But I don't think we'll be that many. But if there is or more, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll make it work, people. This is something to um, to just try and incentivize people to improve knife making in Australia. It's not about just having fun and everything. It's about getting our skills up. And that's what the guilds are all about. So very, very strong point there. Uh, I'm going to hand over now to our uh, like uh, illustrious. To one more, and... I'd like to add one more little thing to that. From the, yours. From the perspective of the Knife Art Association, if you enjoyed, which I definitely hope you did, if you enjoyed Sean's presentation this evening on the podcast or the podcast, the Knife Art Association run symposiums symposiums give you access to people like sean with their expert knowledge and you also get to meet other knife enthusiasts and learn a whole mm. bunch of other stuff in the process the questions and which the people guild. we've missed you get probably get the opportunity to jump on board and ask some questions in person at you know later intervals but that that when we return to normal hopefully soon borders open traveling that sort of stuff Mm. Um, keep an eye out for symposiums and, and as Corin was guilds, about to jump into the guild's knife guilds camp knife camp yes because I when Sean was going on about uh, going on sorry that's the wrong term when <laughs> Sean, Sean was talking when Sean was talking about blocking out a knife handle the guild runs hands on courses and hands on camps and I've actually done a hands on camp with Sean in blocking out a handle and how that works and I've done it we did it on a piece of pine uh, and it was absolutely phenomenal. It was free, only three people in the class. It's hands-on instructorship. And that all comes through the guild. And it's like, uh, it's it's very, very cheap. It's all subsidized by the guild. It probably won't be cheap yeah. going forward because we're going to employ someone. We prefer but to say great value. Really not great cheap. value, right? Yes. So anyway, now, that's enough about one, one moment before Mert falls asleep. I know you're tired, mate. Uh, just just quickly, just, uh, uh, just one thing to say. <laughs> One quick thing I would say to everyone who wants to improve their knife skills, okay? Time in the shed is number one. Number two, go to shows. Go to symposiums. Join the guild if you want. Um, you need to get to see other people's knives in person. You need to talk to other knife makers. You need to be in the room with them so that you can, you know, 
learn and understand in person about nothing will improve your knives um, the way going and seeing other knives and other knife makers in person will be very important. Honey, can I have my derby, please? I can't believe this. I'm being at out happy. Uh, right. Hats off to you, Sean. Well done. That's all I got. Okay, well done. Um, I didn't miss all that, but that's okay. Uh, thank you very much, Sean, for your time. Mert, it's all you. Hand over for the last and final thank you. Uh, don't, put me, don't put me on the spot, man. I just did. You just did. You're on the spot. You're on the spot. It's a nice hat, too. Yes, I know. It's a pretty hat. Where did that hat cut from, Mert? Where did you get a hat? Daughter's, that's my daughter's <laughs> uh, pool hat. Oh. Nice. Sun smart. That's fantastic. Sun smart. All right, man. Not that, not that I, I dance like a Michael Jackson. It... <laughs> Shh. Oh, yes. He's just up no, as fast as all. I'm so not. I'm not I'm not, this is not my first radio, guys. I'm not going to be out-hatted. Sean <laughs> <laughs> so, um, also started a group some time ago called uh, the... <laughs> what was it? You remember it? Of an um, historically accurate silly hat system. <laughs> Corey, do you know how many ridiculous things I've said? I can't keep them all straight, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the funny thing with that, Sean, is I went out and bought two hats because of that group. Uh, we'll have and to so start. Uh, this is, okay, this is the, the next. Yeah. The next. The next Melbourne Australian yes. Knife Makers Guild show in Melbourne. We have to run the. I believe it's the 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 gentlemen and metal crafters who enjoy historically accurate and unusual hats association that's the one something yes, along that line one. yeah i think that was it i think it was it we'll work yeah. on the acronym yeah i remember coming right. home going out to buy hats and my wife was like why do you all of a sudden want hats and i don't ask it's a so secret thank society you. <laughs> so mert you're gonna say the thanks you're gonna do it well no yeah Yep. Well, I will say thanks for listening to everybody and thanks for the questions. And again, thank you to Sean, who's not just a master smith, but he is one of the best knife making teachers that I managed to watch his class. So thanks for listening and thanks, no Mark. fucking lullaby. No fucking lullaby tonight. How about that, you degenerates? <laughs> oh, that is fucking sad. Yeah, we're all a bit sad about that, Mert. Um, yeah. Sean, uh, you might have to tune back into various episodes in the past. Just see what yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, probably oh. don't actually. Don't you? Well for... <laughs> <laughs> All right, lads. All right, thank you very much, everybody, Woo! for joining in. Thank you, Sean, for an awesome presentation. And uh, oh, nice. Oh. <laughs> Historically <laughs> accurate. Nice. Yeah. He's we, can do this. we can do this for days. Well, yeah, you're going to win. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you very much, everyone. I appreciate your time and your attention.